Canada. Hello. First, I want to say I'm really glad we came to Toronto. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. Uh, this is our third, inst- third and final installment of our coverage of the 2023 Toronto International Film Festival. I am Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week on the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest films coming to a theater near you. This week, we're, we're, we're finishing it up. We, uh, we saw 30 films at TIFF. Uh, we had an episode where we talked about 11, an episode where we talked about 10. We're going to talk about the nine final films right now. Um, we're finally done. We are back home, both in our uh, residence here in San Francisco. Hopefully, we're sounding much better than we did uh, in the Airbnb uh, before. But uh, yeah, I, I, I got to give... I got to embarrass Chris and give some editing props, though, because I heard what it sounded like originally. And the last episode sounded surprisingly not terrible, given the garbage <laughs> I gave you to work with from my microphone. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it, it didn't help or it didn't hurt that I dragged all of the blankets and pillows from, from the bedrooms out into the living room for that recording. But, uh, you know, I, I thought we were just making a fort to celebrate our last day at, at Toronto. But apparently it was for audio quality. <laughs> yeah, apparently it was for, you know, trying to put out something that didn't sound god awful. Um, but uh, yeah, hopefully everybody, you know, enjoyed those last two episodes and hopefully everybody enjoys this last episode, too. Um, I apologize ahead of time as the this probably has the greatest number of films I didn't care for in it. So <laughs> everybody get ready for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, let me I'm, I'm going to take a guess. Just looking. Let's see. One. Define didn't care for. Is that like less than neutral in your mind? Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I would I would say that. I think. I think you were neutral or greater than neutral on four out of nine of the ones that we're going to talk about today. We'll see. I... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, d- I've, I have a heart next to three of them. So, you know, that's that's a good. That's a okay. good amount. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I so you're pretty close, at least. <laughs> but yeah, Stephen, are you ready to get into this? Oh, I'm ready. All right, we're going to do it. We're going to start with the first film on our list, which is a little film called Finest Kind, um, which is a story of uh, two brothers who one of them is a longtime fisherman um, and the brother is kind of coming back into town. He's about to go off to law school. And before he does that, he wants to spend the summer or fall or whatever the hell season it is um, out on his brother's fishing boat. And due to a series of unfortunate events, um, you know, the the two brothers find themselves in a place where they have to... uh, cast their nets in with uh, a local uh, crime syndicate guy and basically get into a whole mess of trouble. And uh, this is the story of how these two brothers try to hold on to their family business, hold on to maybe some relationships in their lives and uh, hold on to some drugs, maybe. (laughs) Um, I this is one of those ones where like the header images, the header image for this film when we were booking tickets, it was pretty much just the cast sitting on a boat. And we're like, all right, three of these four people, we know who they are. (laughs) This could be interesting. Let's check it out for yourself. I knew all four, baby. Okay, well, you knew all four. I knew all three uh, of the ones that uh, were not the fourth guy. Um, But, you know, it was kind of like, all right, let's get ready to see this film. Didn't necessarily have high expectations for it. And then, you know, as we were approaching the screening date, started to see some bad headlines. Uh, the the headline, I believe, that came out of IndieWire was something like Jenna Ortega is the least likely drug dealer you've ever seen. And the film gets worse from there or something something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But uh, I was kind of like, ooh, 
<laughs> this might be something interesting that we're about to get into. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the film is called The Finest Kind, um, which is a phrase about these parts in Boston, w- which I, it seems like it might have been made up by the family. But it basically is a word that can mean a lot of different things. But like The Finest Kind is like, yeah, all right, that's fine. Or it, it's basically like saying, like, it can also mean like super shitty or like, isn't this the sort of thing that would happen to me? It's like finest kind is sort of just like a, a generic term that gets thrown out for all these situations where it's just kind of like, like, ah, oh, stepped in shit, finest kind, <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, I would say this film is a little finest kind as well. <laughs> you know, it's it is it is a little run of the mill. It is. um kind of straightforward it actually takes a long time to get into the drug dealing this is a film that i don't remember what yeah. the total runtime was but it was one of those things where i was like like when we we're first introduced to jenna ortega she is dealing drugs in that she hands somebody some drugs and i was like oh did that indie wire thing mis- mis- <laughs> misdirect me was that the whole thing that we're getting into and then way towards the end of the film it actually involves like interacting with um, somebody in some crime syndicate and I was kind of, I just, I was watching this whole film and like, sure, you know, Ben Foster's and, and his brother's character are, are interesting, you know, like I, I like their relationship and, you know, they have enough chemistry to sort of barely hold this film together, but there's nothing in it that really made me vibe with it. I kind of just watched it. It kind of happened in front of me and it was just enough to make me not sort of drift off to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's yeah. not saying a lot for the film. So, Stephen, what did you think of it? Yeah, this movie, um, as the kids say on the internet, this movie doesn't exist, <laughs> as far as I can tell. It just left no <laughs> mental impression yep. on me. It, It is, like you said, it's the story of these guys in New England who go on a boat. It has all these things. There's, there's international water uh, border laws. There's drug deals. There's an estranged father. There's a drug dealer who's dating a brother. There's all these things that happen, and it doesn't feel like anything happens. It just feels like it lifted this movie out of the skeleton of 10 other movies and was like, have you seen a movie before? Yeah, this is one of those. <laughs> just pretend <laughs> pretend you're watching a movie. I am bewildered. I, I was looking up, because um, this was directed... Uh, by Brian Helgeland. Uh, sorry if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but I assumed when I watched this movie, this must be a guy who's like never directed something before or he transitioned from TV into film and this is his first bat and whatever. It's messy <laughs> and he just kind of phoned it in. But, you know, it's the thing. Brian has been doing shit forever, specifically writing forever. He wrote L.A. Confidential. He wrote Mystic River. Um, even in directing, like he directed 42, the Jackie Robinson biopic that everybody loved. Um, he directed Legend, Payback at Night's Tale. Like this is a guy who's been around the block a long time yeah. in Hollywood. And I do not understand how you make a movie so devoid of any kind of style or voice <laughs> if you have been doing it this long. I'm I'm shocked, honestly, because I think the writing is the worst part of this movie. Yeah. Um, like, I didn't hate it. It was it was completely... The movie was fine. The movie was tune out, watch a two-hour thing. But I, I thought the writing was cringy. The character building basically doesn't exist. You don't really believe that anyone is what they say they are. It's just a... I don't know. It's a whatever of a movie. And I honestly feel way more sour on it now that I know that the guy who made it should should know how to write and direct a a good movie. There there was one unintentionally brilliant line of dialogue in this film, which I don't feel bad spoiling. (laughs) What? what? 
Oh, I just said finest kind. No, 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 no. But th- that's there... half the dialogue in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is half the dialogue. The other half of the dialogue, though, or at least this one line from the other half of the dialogue was, I, it made me chuckle out loud in the theater. No one else laughed, though, but I, 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 I had a good chuckle, which is the two brothers are arguing, and they're arguing about the fact that they went into internet, they crossed the international border to go fish illegally and then came back. And there's a part where they're, they're arguing about decisions they both, both made and crossing the line. And the one brother says to the other, yeah, do you know what line you crossed when you went into Canadian waters? And uh, I, I had to chuckle at that because I was like, yeah, international border, that's the line you crossed. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of shoddy writing that like it was funny, unintentionally funny, but that's the kind of like, ooh, you crossed a line. A border. Like, it just feels like this guy should know better. I don't know. I, I was okay <laughs> with it. Like, I didn't hate watching this movie. It also did make me have to grapple with the fact that time doesn't stop for anyone. Uh, we are getting old because Jenna Ortega plays a believable person who can order a beer at a bar. And that <laughs> seriously disturbs me when I feel like I blinked an eye like two minutes ago and she was believably playing a high schooler. Yeah. So, or a junior higher, in fact. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I just didn't believe any character here, except Tommy Lee Jones, who I don't know if he knows he's in a movie, but what, whatever he's doing, it works <laughs> but, on me. <laughs> but I believed he did, doesn't know that he's in a movie, so... <laughs> mm, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so really, he was spot on with his presentation of whatever he was doing. Yeah, Finest Kind cannot, in good faith, really recommend it to anyone. I just don't know what you would get out of it. Maybe if you are a fisher man, fisher person in, <laughs> in New England, maybe you're going to see yourself reflected. Maybe Finest Hour was too long ago, and you want someone else who can, you know, kind of speak in that accent and get on a boat. <laughs> so maybe you'll enjoy it for everyone else. Why? Why waste your time? Yeah. Also, um, this was the night after we saw Smugglers. Which is also about yeah. people that fish on a boat and get into the drug trade. So like it, it's like, oh come on, like this this Korean film was fucking awesome, and then this movie exactly. was just so mediocre. Yeah, this movie had uh, had no epic hallway fights. Um, it, <laughs> no seventies yeah, haircuts. Didn't have any of the fun. Exactly, no seventies haircuts. Not a lot of hair <laughs> at all, honestly. Uh, other than Jenna Ortega, a lot of like crew cuts, basically a lot yeah. of really close shaves. So I. I, w- I want to see that 70s hair go long if I'm going to have to watch it for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the next movie uh, is Next Goal Wins by a little director named Taika Waititi. Um, this tells the kind of, kind of true story um, of the coach of the American Samoa um, soccer, world soccer team. Yeah, the national uh, I don't team. actually know what you call it, the national soccer team. Yeah. yeah. Um, the story is that they had been humiliated at the World Cup over a decade ago by setting the record for having the most scores against oneself in something <laughs> like 32 to 0. Um, <laughs> and ever since then, at least according to the movie, no idea if this is real life or not, they have not scored a single goal in any official competitive event of any yeah. kind. Um, and Michael Fassbender plays a kind of washed up end of his rope a soccer coach in America who is fired from his last job and is basically given an ultimatum. You can either go to American Samoa and coach this team, or you can be unemployed. Uh, And so he decides to go there. From there, you basically get a... If you've seen the trailer, you know what the movie is. It's a Ted Lasso-style movie where this coach tries to shape up a group of people that 
it's kind of upside down Ted Lasso because these the American Samoan team gets along great. They love each other. They're very happy. They're very positive. They just do not know how to play soccer yeah. <laughs> at all, um, at least in the movie. And Michael Fassbender has to try to shape them up and they have to teach him how to be a happier, more at peace person. Um, I think when we were leaving this screening, I told you that this movie just makes me realize how even the most does not try hard at all does the absolute bare minimum <laughs> sports movie still will have moments that make me want to stand up and cheer just by the kind of excitement of inspirational sports drama. Because yeah. um, this movie just does not have a lot going for it. Like, I do not feel like Taika was really trying that hard in, in this one. It. It had a few funny lines. It's interesting seeing Michael Fassbender play against type. I feel like I haven't seen him do a comic role ever. I don't know if you have a counterexample. I don't remember him ever being anything but a very serious, stern, actorly actor. Yeah, on the spot, I have nothing in my head right now, but it, it, something yeah. obvious is probably out there. Yeah, so like it, it, I guess it's kind of fun to see him play a wacky Taika Waititi character, and like the surrounding cast, they all have their moments. You know, you have you have little Taikaisms that are fun, where a character is irreverent or says something that just doesn't fit the moment at all, and you get some laugh lines. But overall, I thought this was just kind of like a. It was a dud that I still enjoyed by virtue of just how enjoyable sports movies are. Um, and I will also say it has some very strange and I think awkward um, handling of, I don't know if you would call them trans issues exactly, but certainly gender related issues that just makes me feel like Taika Waititi did not ask anyone for a second opinion yeah. <laughs> of how to write this movie or how to maybe punch up some of the moments. So yeah, it's weird. I like begrudgingly recommend this because it's like, I had fun. I cheered at the right moments. You know everything that is going to happen in this movie from the trailer, and it gives you what you think is going to happen. It doesn't give you anything that you don't think is going to happen positively. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just... I, I'm not a fan, but I had more fun than I didn't, and I guess I guess that means this was vaguely successful. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> I also feel like it was doing just enough to keep me caring as it was going, but it also feels a little bit like a TV movie, like something on like yeah. one of those higher up channels where like you accidentally tune in to watch it and then you just don't change the channel and hang out with it. And you're like, oh, that was kind of cute and funny. Um, I, I didn't really think that it was doing a lot. I mean, especially the last time we were at TIFF, we saw Jojo Rabbit, which... Yeah. was fantastic and like an amazing film and like to come into this it was kind of like I, I was kind of excited to watch it you know the trailer looked funny enough I was like this this could be fun and I got what just really felt like uh like as you said it was like it was like a dud that had enough heart to raise it above complete dud and just be like a clumsy guy that fell a little bit <laughs> I guess that's that's, yeah. that's an elevated dud right <laughs> this is a clumsy guy who fell sure. um and it just kind of I don't know I don't I don't really know what it was doing. Like it was like it has just enough heart to make you go like, "Oh," but it it really it wasn't bringing anything to the table that really stood out and made you think like, "Oh, like like I would never put this on again and watch it." You know, like right. other films have enough going on that I I I think of lines that like were funny at the time and I can't wait to like rewatch a scene because it was hilarious or, you know, you know, there was biting commentary about something in this one area of, you know, like Jojo Rabbit. Um, but like this film was just kind of like, yeah, there's Fassbender doing his thing and then he goes and 
doesn't like this team because they're bad at soccer and then tries to begrudgingly fall in love with them and try to teach them to play soccer. And it's just, I, I don't, we've seen enough things like this that at least are more inspirational or are more funny or more anything. And this film just seems like a mediocre version of all those other films doing the same thing. And for me, it like, I did not dislike the film. I just walked out of it going like, huh, all right, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, it just left. I mean, I feel similar. It just left no impression. And I should mention, by the way, we are in the somewhat minority of people who care about movies in our opinion of Jojo Rabbit because a lot of critics dislike that movie. And we like we are on the Tycho wavelength. Like we both left that screening at TIFF really, really enjoying Jojo Rabbit and even watched it a second time and really enjoyed it. So I'm not in the like hate Taika Waititi, don't like his irreverent attitude thing at all. I'm totally fine with it. Yeah. But I feel like ever since Jojo, like Thor Love and Thunder, I thought it had funny moments, but a lot of the more Taika-isms felt, like, really phoned in and, like, he just wasn't trying that hard at the comedy. And this just feels like an extension of that. Like, th this is stripped down in a way that should be, like, Hunt for the Wilder People. Like, it should be the kind of thing that I just... I enjoy the smallness of, you know, characters take themselves seriously, but they're actually wacky and their lives are very small. And there's all sorts of stuff that you could enjoy about it. And it just felt like he is not trying at all. And yeah. I don't... I don't really understand it. He has all the money in the world. If he's doing a small movie like this, he should be like passionate about it. I, it shouldn't. There's no reason to do it if you don't care about it. I, I, I do kind of understand it, though, because like there was there was a point where like he was attached to like a million different things. Right. Whether it was like playing an actual mm -hmm. role in something or directing it or, you know, working on it like he just out of nowhere just had like everything at, at his, like laid out in front of him and i think that like when you have too many opportunities you don't get to spend the time on things in the same way and it kind of felt like i don't know i i, I can understand a little bit why if you're focusing on a lot of different things you can't really give all your attention to all the things that you're focusing on but you know it, it is what it is i i did i didn't hate seeing it um i don't know when it comes out for real but um, you know, it's it's not something that I think is worth necessarily catching in theaters. It's something you could watch uh, when it streams at home, because that's kind of the level that we're talking about here. Yep. Cool. Uh, well, moving on, uh, we're talking about a little film called A Normal Family. Um, this is another film that, that was in that bucket of premieres that we got access to that were all um, Korean films. And this is, uh, once again, this this feels like a film that, like, you know, it actually has some budget behind it. It's got it's got this really really nice clean look, um, and it's basically about uh, a a family, um, two brothers uh, whose uh, children may have been involved in something, and it's sort of, you know, one of them is a uh, defendant in the legal system, and one of them is a police officer, um, and it's sort of about how they both kind of feel a certain way about the world and how justice needs to be served or not served. And when their respective children get involved in a sort of situation themselves, how their interplay with their morals and ideas about what justice means and who has to pay for what crimes, um, those start to play off each other. And, uh, you know, it, it is it is a very interesting film. This is once again one of those films that we got at a late night screening. And uh, it was I, I was struggling a little bit uh, to get through it, but it was something that like actually kept me interested and captivated by the story that was taking place. And uh, w once again, this is like a, a film that has some like wild moments of action. <laughs> 
kind of like like this movie opens with a literal bang um and yeah. you know it, it there's there, there are a few more literal bangs throughout the film um so you know like it, it was it was intriguing i have a feeling steven you liked it a little more than i did um but uh so why don't you let everybody know what your thoughts were on it yeah i i liked it i, I didn't love it but i liked it it's basically like a twisty dark drama about two families who are having different feelings about you know forgiveness versus justice and nepotism and how far would you go to protect someone and i just think it's very cleverly done um it feels i i, I never know exactly what it means when i say this except that you just have to know it when you see it it feels like a real movie like it felt like a <laughs> it, it it felt like there was like actual budget put behind it the look and feel is very polished the acting is really well done and it's just it's using it in service to a very interesting, dark, compelling story. I've never read The Dinner, uh, the novel that it's based on before. So I don't know how much was modified to bring it to Korea versus how much was just exactly what is in the original story. Um, but yeah, I, I liked it. it. I found it captivating enough. It held my attention. It has some big bangs, like you said, moments that kind of surprise you and jar you. And yeah, overall, I just my feeling was this is the kind of movie that's like probably mid-budget, provocative, not tiny art house, but also not like superhero movie that I feel like we just don't make that much anymore in the US. So I was happy to see it. Uh, and I enjoyed myself a lot, but definitely not like among the top top of the festival for me either. Just a, an enjoyable, dark family drama. Definitely worth catching out, but yeah. not, not something I would recommend above maybe more than 50% of the things that we watched. Yeah, I, I think the I think the ideas the film is putting forth are better than the conversations the characters have around those ideas. So it's one of those things mm -hmm. where it's a film that gets you thinking and that you could probably have conversations with the other people that you watch it with that would be more enriching than what the film is necessarily putting on the table but then it like what it what it is missing in insight into those conversation it sort of makes up with with like style and emotion and stuff like that yeah. so um you know it's i i enjoyed it enough it just didn't really hit me yeah yeah i agree i think the style is interesting and it almost made it feel like one of those um i'm i'm, I'm trying to think of a good example of like a a dark stylistic comedy that is about kind of intense things but manages to do it with a kind of rhythm and a verve um yeah it, it's the kind of movie like thoroughbreds where it just has it has a kind of dark heart a dark message but it, it plays forward with a kind of like propulsive stylistic intensity that makes it always always exciting and interesting to watch yeah so yeah i i enjoyed it well enough cool uh, well, the next movie uh, was uh, one of probably the more famous films of the festival. Uh, this is The Boy and the Heron by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, this is the latest Studio Ghibli movie. And it is supposedly Miyazaki's last film, though I believe he said that about The Wind Rises also. So yeah. it isn't clear when retirement will really happen. Um, this is a movie that is about a... There's a boy who <laughs> lost his heron. Yeah. A boy here on, you know the rest. Um, you know, there, there, there's a boy who he loses his mother in what seems like kind of the Tokyo firebombings, though it isn't specifically that, but that, stylistically, that is what it's addressing. Yeah. Uh, it takes place during World War II. He has lost his mother tragically. He doesn't know how to get over it. And his father relocates them from Tokyo into some quiet, 
countryside large house that was from the same neighborhood that his mother was born. Um, and he remarries uh, his mother's younger sister. So dad... As one does. And... <laughs> yeah, dad and the aunt are now expecting a child, uh, and the main protagonist is depressed. He's like, he, he doesn't know how to move on. Um, and to make matters worse, this heron starts appearing, and first just seeming looming over him, you know, see, seeming a little bit invasive. Uh, I don't know if there's a symbol in Japanese folklore already that, like, this bird would be an omen of some kind. I'm not sure. I kind of got that sense. Um, but eventually it is literally talking and it is telling him things like, you can get your mother back, follow me, or conversely, let me remind you about how your mother died. And so the the kid is very frustrated, wants to kill the heron. Things ensue. He winds up in an alternate world, uh, a lot like Spirited Away, where a whole bunch of stuff happens. It's like a bird-populated alternate world. Um, he is shepherded from place to place. He's on a quest looking for someone that I won't spoil. And it's just, it's a Miyazaki movie. Like, a lot of things happen. Um, and then you're kind of left to piece them together emotionally and understand what they mean. I thought... This was a beautiful movie. Uh, I really, really, really loved it. I, I mean, it's Miyazaki. What more can you say? Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought the, the character design of the bird creatures was really interesting. <laughs> um, there's a lot of that kind of fluid Freudian logic of like things in the dream world that relate to things in the real world, but they're kind of askew or upside down. Um, there's a visual of souls that are trying to be born be free and then someone that is trying to help them that also burns them in the process there are all these things that feel like someone untangling the death of their mother in these kind of like half ways that don't they make sense emotionally but they don't actually add up to one specific moral um i i really enjoyed my time with this movie i thought it was really moving and powerful and lovely and yeah miyazaki is the best and i love when he goes in this more like melancholy register as opposed to just the purely playful more aiming at children movies this is definitely more more mature it isn't the wind rises but it is more mature than i would say a lot of the miyazaki films how did you feel yeah um this is a film that uh you know i i enjoyed a lot and i loved kind of like just getting you know you know, every time I dipped a toe into whatever the hell was happening in this world, it was always exciting and, and something weird and new was getting magical was going to happen. I love the animation style of this. There's a lot of like really sort of, you know, a lot, of, you know, a lot of the fire imagery involves like this, like, uh, you know, like, I don't know what it's called when like fire distorts your perception of mm, yeah. stuff like uh it, like mirage kind of sort of like like a lot of motion a lot right. of interesting things um i was joking with you as we were leaving that you know i was like yeah miyazaki is like if this is gonna be my last film it's gonna be the most film ever <laughs> like it's yeah. like there are so many scenes where there are just like a thousand things on screen all with their own like bespoke movements and animations and kind of all piling together and stuff and i, I think visually i really really liked it i didn't 100 percent connect like on individual beats, I got emotional connection to individual moments where different characters are feeling about a certain thing. It's hard to not just connect with that when you see characters like feeling <laughs> out loud. Yeah. Um, but I think overall, I didn't necessarily. Uh, I, I was too much like in my head compare not comparing it, but like linking it to other things. Like and again, when we were walking out, I was like, "It's got a little bit of like what dreams may come." There's a little bit of soul in there. There's mm -hmm. a lot, there's like a bunch of things where it's like it's not doing something similar. It's just 
visually and aesthetically reminds me of the way I felt when I saw those other things. Um, 100%. And then, like, there's a bunch of, like, Akira stuff at the end. And, like, you know, like, there's, <laughs> there's like, so much interesting stuff that happens. And I was being so overwhelmed visually with that that I wasn't really trying to piece it all together and think about what it all means. So I haven't really, like, analyzed yeah. it myself. Like, we talked about a few things. And I was like, yeah, that, that 100% makes sense. I was not, at the time... Yeah analyzing it in that way because i was just kind of like whoa what's happening next uh, there's a little bit of a <laughs> monster sink in there <laughs> you know there, there's like so much going on and i enjoyed it for that watch um but i i didn't i didn't necessarily connect with it emotionally um outside of the individual moments of connections to individual characters on their journey um but yeah uh, i mm -hmm. still i still liked it it still got a heart for me um i i really enjoyed that watch that was this is one of the hardest ones I think to get into just because like yeah they were holding the tickets as long as they could they were selling out instantly um I don't know who Stephen killed to get his tickets for it but <laughs> but you know it was a good reason it rhymes with Schmeron I won't <laughs> I won't tell you exactly um, nice so yeah I, I totally hear you this does not have the like the single emotional oomph that carries it all the way through it's much more scattered it it kind of feels to me I think we were talking that like it feels to me like Asteroid City almost, where it's like he's throwing all these different things that are indicative of his style into one movie and then has some beats toward the end that are kind of about the problem of trying to make a world and trying to make things make sense. And it really feels like Miyazaki just kind of going out with a I'm going to do everything in one movie and kind of look back on my own legacy and toy with that and in the end, again, not have any clear answer or single emotional thread, but all those B2B moments worked for me really well. And I think the the totality of it, just like how much he goes for it and how many different things he crams in there, it's just a movie that I think would reward multiple viewings. And um, I, I really like thinking about it in the days afterwards. So I was probably a little bit more taken by this movie than you were, but I think we both agree that visually this movie is incredible. Yeah. We're moving on to a little film uh, called Fingernails, which is a, a film that, you know, we has been available at a few other film festivals, but we have never caught it. Um, and now it's like, hey, this is a chance to finally catch up on this and see what's going on. But yeah, Fingernails is basically the story of um, in the world of this film, there are uh, there's this test. Um, I, I sort of equate it to um, the machine of death, if anybody's read um, any of those short stories. But basically, there's this device where you pluck off one of your fingernails, you pluck off the fingernail of your partner, you put them in this little machine, hit a button, and it tells you... Um, it, it's not exactly your compatibility, but the percentage of love you as a unit contain for each other. So ideally, as a couple, you would want to receive 100% because the 100% would mean both of you are 100% in love with uh, the other person. And as I'm saying this out loud, I kind of don't understand <laughs> how that, you know, because if you, yeah, yeah, because 100%, it, it, th there's something about this math that doesn't make any sense the more I think about it, but it's fine. You, you Really? It's measuring two things, and it's measuring the compatibility between the two, and 100% is dual compatibility, 50% is one-sided, zero is no compatibility. But, but we don't know that 50% is one person fully in love, the other person partially in love, right? Both people could be mildly in love with each other. And I, it, it's, it's sort of implied... In, in the movie parlance, it's binary. It's love or not love, I guess. I, I don't know that that is true. 
I think I, I, I'm okay. trying not to spoil individual numbers that come out of any given scene. Um, but I think it's implied that the total count you can get is not either 150 or zero, but could be variance in between. Um, that might have been a mm. bad assumption on my part, um, but I guess I'll yeah, have to... I did, that's not what I got. I, I got that only 0, 50, and 100 are possible. Hmm. That, that was my understanding. All right. All right. Well, yeah. maybe that's a fundamental flaw in the story, then. I don't know, Stephen. <laughs> um, but anyways, th mm. th this is a film that I found very, very interesting. Um, you know, it, it is... It is one character starting, you know, one character who's part of a couple who have in the past received 100% um, has fr have different friends who either believe in the test or don't believe in the test and is sort of looking at her space in life. Um, Jesse Buckley is trying to figure out what's going on with her life and her, her position in this relationship and goes to work for the company that administers or they don't. It, well, yeah, they do administer the test, but they also teach classes to better perform on the test yeah there it's like the the psat or whatever yeah. like they're they're also training people to have a better shot at having a positive outcome yeah. in the test steven the more i describe this film the more i'm starting to have problems with the makeup of the universe mm. but this film is a vibe it's bringing up a lot of interesting things about relationships as i kind of hinted at at the beginning when i was talking about boy and the heron I don't necessarily know if I fully understand the filmmaker's stance on the questions they're yeah. raising, but I believe the questions are very, very interesting and good questions to discuss. And um, I, I really enjoyed this film. Um, you know, I haven't fully digested everything. And like I said, the, the actual mechanics of the universe are starting to now, as I talk about them, make me question them a little bit. But... I think this is a very, very interesting film. I'm glad we saw it. Um, it's a little slow. As we were walking out, it seemed like some people in the crowd were not vibing at all with it. It might have just been the way that certain people who are very, very vocal talk. Um, maybe more people in the audience vibe with it than the impression of the voices that I heard as we were walking out. But um, I'm glad we saw it. I'm sure we'll probably do a full review of it when it becomes available in the future. I don't know if this is one of those ones that we do one of those patented... Uh... <laughs> spoiler wearing heart-to-heart <laughs> film conversations yeah. um but but yeah i enjoyed it stephen miller what did you think of this film yeah so this is a movie that i like you said the audience leaving the theater at least the vocal people seemed to not really like it and heading in i had looked at letterboxd because there weren't a lot of uh big publications that had reviewed this as far as i could tell and letterboxd sentiment was fairly low on this movie going into the point where this was very late in the fest. Um, I was tired. You were tired. I was tempted to skip this movie altogether because I knew we wanted to see the next movie memory, which was a later night showing. <laughs> and I'm so glad I didn't skip this movie. If, if we were making a list of films that I go to bat for that most people seem to not enjoy, Fingernails would be at the top of that list for me, just in that in the ratio between how much more I liked it than what it seems like the average person did. Um, I, I described this as like the lobster mini or whatever. Uh, it, it is very much doing something kind of similar to Yorgos Lanthimos, though it has more of a beating heart than I think the Lanthimos movies do. Um, I thought this was a really interesting dissection of a relationship, specifically the relationship dynamic of two people who seemingly love each other, seemingly get along really well. They're happy but they don't seem to have matching love languages, I guess. Like they're um, Jesse Buckley and Jeremy Allen White 
are a couple who have been together for a long time and they love each other. They're happy. They even have this proof that they are in love, like this, uh, you know, certificate essentially that guarantees that they're in love. And yet the things Jesse wants to do to make their relationship feel more alive and more dynamic, Jeremy Allen White is like, why do you want to do that? We're already happy. We're already good. And they just have this thing that doesn't click. I, I feel like this is a really good sci-fi indie way of exploring this emotional feeling of the like the push and pull between a long-term relationship and the excitement of something new or maybe the question of whether you are are you settling by being with someone who doesn't perfectly match with the way that you would prefer to be loved and like is being loved enough or do you need to be loved in the way that you want to be loved and do you need to love in the way that you want to love and i think I just thought there was so much that I was thinking about while watching this movie. And I think it's really because Jessie Buckley is just a, a wonderful actress. <laughs> We've already discussed her yeah. in our TIFF coverage before. And she brings so much to this role of this person who is, she really means well. She like, l she cares about love. She's excited, but she's also deeply anxious, it seems like. And she wants to see validation and she doesn't exactly know why she is joining this this training program that is meant to help other people, but she's looking for something in there. And I think she just communicates it so, so, so well. I really felt for her and I was really excited to see what this movie was going to do with those emotions and how it would explore it. And I don't think it's perfect. You know, you pointed out the plot. I will actually stand by most of the plot working, but <laughs> I agree. This isn't like a fully fleshed out universe like her or something where I'm like, wow, it is emotional sci-fi, but you nailed all the details. Like this movie doesn't care about the details. Yeah, yeah. This movie is more of like thought experiment. Imagine this thing existed. Now what? And I just, I don't know if I've seen a movie probe this question of, People have talked about is love enough, you know, like there might be other circumstances in your life that make love not be enough. But what about like love and comfort both exist? Is love enough? Or are there things about your communication styles, how you love each other, how you relate to each other, where it still might not be fulfilling? I, I don't know. I, I just thought it was unpacking a really interesting thing. And I, I really enjoyed thinking about this movie. So I recommend Fingernails. Um, I think this is well worth watching. And I don't think reviews are going to be kind to it. So I don't think a lot of people will check it out unless somebody rings the bell. So I'm ringing it. I think this yep. is a really, really, really solid movie and definitely think you will get a lot out of it if you watch and put yourself in their shoes and imagine what you would do. Yeah, and, and I, I do just want to make it clear that the, my complaints about the plot in the moment of watching the film, I totally was like, I get it. There's a machine. That's all I need to know. Let's do it. It's just as I was saying it out loud on paper, that's when I started to think about like, wait a second, there's a bunch of stuff here that doesn't make sense. But it didn't take away from mm -hmm. my enjoyment of the film in, in the real time. Um, also, just lastly, I just want to say that uh, maybe if Je Jesse Buckley realized that after her boyfriend has spent all day working at the beef, that maybe he just needs to unwind a little bit by coming home and watching yeah. some nature documentaries. Uh, if she just got that, then she would understand that their relationship's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, Jesse. Give Jeremy Allen White a chance. He just uh -oh. went through a divorce, I believe. <laughs> uh, but yes, I kid, obviously. Um, Riz Ahmed is also charming in this movie, I just wanted to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, he... he uh, I'm definitely a fan of what he's doing in this film. <laughs> yeah, honestly, Luke Wilson is the only one who I don't really know what movie he's in. His dialogue seems stilted in a way that is different from everyone else's dialogue. That's at least my feeling. See, I, I was fine with him. 
mostly because a he's that guy right he's he's sort mm. of that he, he i feel like those are the characters that he always plays and he's so great at that and i love that but i think also he is playing into a little bit of the absurdity of this world right like he's mm-hmm. he is this in his own way broken man who runs this group that does this thing right like it's it's kind of like a i don't know there's something interesting about who he was playing that while he tonally felt a little bizarre, I feel like that is his way of being okay with the reality of where he is and where maybe tests he has taken <laughs> have put him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I buy that. I buy that. Uh, well, moving on to a film that I know you are deeply passionate about. Um, <laughs> this is the movie Memory. Um, it stars Jessica Chastain and uh, Peter Sarsgaard. As uh, Jessica Chastain is a woman uh, with, I won't, I won't spoil what her past is, even though you actually learn it pretty early in the film. Uh, but she's a woman that basically works a job as a kind of, not a nurse, but a person who watches, attends to elderly people who are not able to be left alone. Um, she basically works at this house. Most of them are in some ways struggling mentally or physically, and she just has this kind of patient demeanor. Um, with them and she goes to a high school reunion i believe it's high school and there while she is sitting at the table this guy peter sarsgaard walks up to her and she immediately is uncomfortable and leaves and he follows her he follows her to the train he follows her to her apartment he sits on her doorstep all night and she is terrified. Uh, I should mention she is also a former alcoholic that's actually very important to the story so she's someone who already has a kind of like she has built a world in a way where she's protecting herself and she has a routine and an organized way of living. And she feels very threatened or uncomfortable by this strange man who followed her home and might be a menace. Um, but it turns out Peter Sarsgaard has um, some kind of, I don't know if it's dementia is what they call it. It's some kind of mental deterioration where his memory he loses large swaths of it uh, and he goes through periods of time where he does not know where he is or what he's doing and he also has a tendency to just not know his past this is a elliptical movie and when i say elliptical i mean like if you just watch it the plot is all chopped up like it, like it does not really <laughs> tell you it doesn't show you a lot of the big moments it just like shows you other moments in between them uh, it, it's a movie about the two of these people who both are in their own way, kind of broken or hurting, getting to know each other, forming some kind of bond. And yeah, I, if I sound confused about this movie, A, it's because I kind of think the main plot point would be a spoiler, even though for all I know in the summary, they actually talk about it. But So I'm trying to talk around what actually happens between these two people. Um, but then B, I just thought this movie was kind of bewildering to me i didn't hate it but this i love me a good slow movie i i recently <laughs> i probably talked on the podcast i watched satan tango bellatar's seven and a half hour movie about people in a farming town like i'm totally happy with a slow vibe based movie that gets you into the emotions of the character or into the space or whatever this movie to me felt quiet and slow as molasses for a reason that did not help the story at all it felt like they had this idea of a man losing his memory and a woman who's a recovering alcoholic who had a traumatic past come together. And it's like the director felt like 
it isn't good enough for me to just depict that. I need to throw in other stylistic things to make it feel like an important or interesting movie. And to me, that slowness and quietness and refusal to show me the big moments of the film, it, it just kind of lost me. I, I felt frustrated with the director. I've since read, and I think this is just his kind of signature style, like this is what he does, but it it didn't add up to a lot for me because I felt like I couldn't access any character or why they were behaving the way they were behaving. And it, when they do have big emotional confrontations, it felt like overwritten and too over the top and too dramatic in a way they didn't fit the rest of the story. It, it was a weird one. It, I, I did not love it. Like I like Peter Sarsgaard and Jessica Chastain. I think they do well in individual moments in this movie when they're being given a chance to actually shine. But the total movie just it, it didn't really work for me I, I didn't get what the director was trying to do and i didn't walk away feeling like i had some kind of understanding of the the nuance of how these two characters would come together christopher how did you feel <laughs> well Stephen, i also didn't walk away with any kind of nuanced understanding of how these two characters would come together but unintentionally i kind of put those two characters together and then absorbed them into myself um this was, uh, you know, <laughs> Stephen and I decided to grab a, a quick, a quick rapid bite before we went out to see this theater or the, this, this screening. And I, I discovered at a local pub house, um, probably my favorite beer that I've had in Toronto, uh, which was, I don't even remember the name of it, but it was like a 12% stout that was being served in 13 ounce glasses. And uh, yep. I, uh, you know. I, I had one of those and I was like, damn, this is really good. I'm going to get another one of these. And then he immediately ran over to the theater and I proceeded to all, you know, all but fall asleep during this film. And, uh, you know, if the film is already a story <laughs> about an alcoholic and a man who is approaching dementia and it's kind of bouncing back and forth between these different moments and you're kind of seeing different scenes from different people's vantage points and you're kind of always a little bit at odds and not understanding what's happening. Um, it turns out if you're already in that state yourself... Um, it's really, really hard to follow along with this film. Yeah. Chris did follow me home afterwards in a way that was very unsettling. I mean, that that's 100% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but we were sharing an Airbnb, so, you know, that's it wasn't as yeah. weird as... No, I, I respect... <laughs> I respect your commitment. I mean, you were a little bit alcoholic and a little bit um, dementia. dementia. I, I like it. Yeah, memory was an issue that I had, so... Uh... Yeah, this is one of those things that, at least for me, because I usually love the kind of like artsy, slow movies that people adore because of the performances at the center. Like, I'm usually the one on this podcast going like, it doesn't matter what it's about, man. You just got to vibe with them. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because it was late and late in the festival and I just wasn't primed for it. I also thought this was going to be a very different movie. I thought this was going to be like people who used to be lovers are coming together way later and are kind of like reminiscing about a past that one of them is forgetting. And this is not that movie at all. Um, but for whatever reason, it like maybe there's another time and place where I would click with this and I would love it the way that other people seem to at least, at least like Peter Sarsgaard won the big acting award out of Venice for this movie. I think he does a good job here, but I just don't understand the character or the movie well enough to even judge how well he does with it. Um, I don't know. I feel broken for not loving this movie, but I, I just didn't. I, I didn't really understand what it was trying to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I was kind of excited to see it. Um, a fan of Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard and, you know, 
Peter Starsgard, I, I was joking with you that like it feels like every time we do a festival, no matter which festival it is, he's in one of the films that we're seeing there. And I was kind of, mm-hmm. I wanted to at least get that, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I regret that I didn't necessarily give it, I, my full, uh, coherent attention. Um, but it sounds like even if I went into that film completely ready to see it at like an afternoon screening, it still might not have vibed with me. Yeah. All right, let's move on to another film that, uh, if I could just start out, <laughs> rip the spandate off, say it didn't vibe with me. Um, there's a little film called Wildcat, and this was, you know, the new film with Ethan Hawke directing his daughter. Um, it is about Flannery O'Connor and sort of, it, it's, it's about her life, but specifically about, um, you know, we meet her having already been like a published short story or like in, in writing journals and stuff like that, but she's working on this one book and it, we're sort of following her um, throughout her life and... Um, as she is working on this one book that she's writing and kind of how she draws inspiration and stuff from the people in her life to put into characters. And you're kind of watching, they're, they're sort of vignettes where it's like she has this thing that she experiences and then it flashes into the character of the story that she's writing and you can see how that moment turned into this one beat in this story. And... um you know, I if I was familiar at all with Flannery, Flannery O'Connor's writing, maybe or, or like you know the person, the real life person at all, then maybe I would like this interpretation of who this person was, um, and like think this was a really good representation of like understanding how that person formed this book. But for me, it's like it might as well be just a character, <laughs> and I'm watching mm-hmm. just that character's life. And that character's life is so intercut with these weird moments of the story that I'm never going to read. And I just felt like I, I felt such a disconnect the entire time. And this is a film with like very deliberate choices of performances. Everything is, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this is all supernatural for the time period. But to me, it feels like very, very big caricatures of these different people. Um, you know, it's got a bunch of big people in the film and it feels just like everyone is just overacting a little bit. And I, I, I had a really, really hard time settling into this film. Um, and I, yeah, I, I just couldn't connect at all. And I kind of just kept waiting for it to draw me in. And the further I got into it, the less drawn in I became. Um, but I'm hoping Steven, that you got something more out of this film. Yeah. Uh, so I actually really enjoyed this movie. I have never read anything by Flannery O'Connor, though this is the second film that references her <laughs> that we saw at TIFF. American Fiction also opens with a Flannery O'Connor short story title that kicks off kind of the whole um, the whole plot of the movie. Um, so I, I liken this to the movie Shirley, the Elizabeth Moss uh, yeah. movie that we watched 100%. a few years ago, where that... Yeah, because that, that was a movie about a novelist or a short story writer that I had never read. But it is a film that is so imbued with what you assume must be their style or references to all of their different body work that from watching the movie, you kind of feel like you understand what this author is about coming from a person who clearly really loves what they do and is trying to homage them well. Um, I think this movie does that for Flannery O'Connor. I got a sense of her kind of interesting semi-religious semi-scandalizing um imagery the way she understands the world her kind of southern gothic style i thought it was really 
well done. I, I thought it was well directed. It was like stylistically really good. I think Ethan Hawke is a genuinely great director. I've liked multiple things that he's done before. And yeah, I was quite taken by this movie. This movie made me want to read Flannery O'Connor's short stories. I just thought it was a good exploration of like a a young artist at a moment in her life when she doesn't know what she stands for and what she is going to be. And it just shows all of the... It depicts the act of creating stories as if they just come to you, right? Which is a kind of classic thing that movies do, where it's like she's filled with all these intrusive thoughts that she builds from everyday life. And her short stories are populated with herself and her mother and people that are in her life, but in these twisted other versions that are kind of reflecting ideas that she's doing. In. And I just thought it was really, really interesting to, to watch them happen. I thought it was really well done. I think Maya Hawke acts it very great. I think the, the controversy surrounding this movie, which is all about, quote, sex scenes and Ethan Hawke needing an intimacy coordinator for his daughter, um, the internet, at least terrible parts of Facebook that I happened to stumble into, made a big deal about this as if it were some pervy, terrible thing. I do not know what the fuck that article was even referring to, because this movie has nothing. There's nothing. This movie has nothing that made me for a moment feel uncomfortable that her father was being the director. Um, so I, I have no idea where that came from. I thought this movie was really well done. I thought its heart was in the right place. And it's an interesting, just like literary short story anthology as a biopic of an author. So I would definitely check it out and also check out Shirley, which is another movie that I like quite a bit by <laughs> Josephine Decker from a few years back. Um, <laughs> a film that I famously hated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is just not uh, Chris's thing. Yeah, it's not, uh, my, it's not my genre of like watch a person invent a world to write into a story. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, moving on with more movies about literary icons and people kind of turning their experiences with them into stories. Uh, the next film is Gonzo Girl, directed by Patricia Arquette. So we've got a nice little boyhood reunion between uh, Ethan and Patricia and Tiff this year. Um <laughs> And this is based on a book called Gonzo Girl, which I have never read. Um, but it tells the story, the semi-fictionalized story of a woman who is an aspiring writer in her own right, who becomes the assistant of Hunter S. Thompson. Um, that is very clearly who Willem Dafoe is in this movie, even though, again, he's using a pseudonym. But everyone is meant to know by the iconography that he is playing Hunter S. Thompson. Um and the assistant goes there to help him finish his novel. And in the process, she winds up completely entrapped, enraptured, whatever you want to call it, by his drugged out, crazy style of creativity and writing. And the movie's about this kind of push and pull between her and him and her trying to finish his novel and him trying to live the life of the mythology of Hunter S. Thompson, which is wildly drinking wildly partying doing things just for the sake of them being interesting and her trying to hold on to some semblance of normalcy or falling falling for him and going along for the ride um i thought this movie was again quite well done i, I think it was better than a directorial debut by an actor usually is i think patricia arquette has a pretty good sense of visual style and she knows how to direct great performances i think the two leads uh, willem dafoe is fantastic i think playing this hunter s thompson like character uh and camilla Mar camilla maroney i don't know if i've seen her before uh who plays the lead the assistant character 
I think she's really good too and basically holds the movie together where you believe that she is conflicted but also tempted by his lifestyle and you understand why she does the things that she does and you you feel for her throughout. I I, I liked it. I didn't think this was an incredible movie. I didn't think it did anything shockingly amazing, but much like Wildcat, it is a movie that is very soaked in the gonzo journalism style. Like this, this book, presumably, certainly the movie about the book, is its own gonzo journalism, which is defined by the author claiming to tell a nonfiction story, but inserting themselves into it and exaggerating, making hyperbolic, turning it into a kind of drug-fueled, wacky encounters that you had with other people narrative rather than a straightforward story about the subject. Um, and I think this succeeds at that. So it, it's an interesting movie. I don't really know who the audience is. I feel like it has to be people who have read at least something by Hunter S. Thompson to get the joy of how well Willem Dafoe is playing with his mythology. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I, I liked it pretty well. I, th I thought it was well done. I didn't like it quite as much as Wildcat, but it was it was a good day for me enjoying these kind of literary movies. And I made me feel smart that I've read some Hunter S. Thompson things, even though I don't even like him. But I don't think the movie <laughs> has to like him either. The movie just wants you to understand his mythology. And I think it gets that across very well. What did you think? Yeah, as somebody who hasn't read anything from Hunter S. Thompson, like this film does a good job of portraying, you know, who he is and drawing you into that character without needing that background. You know, like, you know, it's funny watching this back to back with Wildcat because, you know, in Wildcat, like all my complaints stemmed from like, I don't know who this person is. You're not telling me why I care who this person is. Um so the magic trick of you seeing how she's inspired doesn't help me draw into who the character is. But then in this, not that I like Willem Dafoe as a person <laughs> that he's portraying, but the performance is fun and zany. And like, there's always this like air of danger of him just partying and having fun could be very, very dangerous, even if there's no ill will intended in the moment, you know, like him dancing around with guns and like trying to get people to do stupid shit all the time. Like there is an inherent uh, enjoyment in that and then you have this like young woman who is coming in and who is actively opting in to participate because she wants to get something whether it's just to be close to her perceived her perception of greatness or you know maybe she has her own little idea of something that like she can use this experience to inspire some writing of her own and it's kind of like there's enough you know first of all this this film feels like a train barreling forward of like what's going to happen and like there's enough there to excite me and draw me along that i kind of don't care who this person is and whether or not they're a fictionalized version of a real human being because the character itself is enough interest of pulling me in there so i definitely enjoyed gonzo girl more than i enjoyed wildcat um you know at the end of this story it's still a story about a person that I don't care about <laughs> being told in a fictionalized version to kind of heighten the reality of what may or may not have ever happened. Um, and I kind of don't necessarily care about that. I just, I, I enjoyed the moment to moment beats of watching this film and it, you know, in the end it didn't stick with me, but like, it was something that like, you know, you put it on, you watch this and you're like, all right, that, that was fun. I kind of, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a huge love from me, but it was a thing that maybe just in contrast to Wildcat, it was like enough to like draw me in um, or maybe on its own, it had that uh, just going for it already. Yeah. And I do actually have to flag also, this was a screening where we had, the worst audience member ever, <laughs> uh, at least for my money. It was a woman who 
I don't know if she was high or if this is just what she does or thinks she needs to do to vocalize her love of a movie, but she laughed at like every line of this movie. Every time a drug is used, every time someone curses, every time something over the top happens. And this is a Hunter S. Thompson. So that is like everything that happens in the movie is something that she's going to laugh at. Laugh loudly, laugh laugh as if it were hilarious, laugh so quickly after the dialogue that you can't possibly have even parsed whether it was funny or not. And it drove me so crazy. So my feeling about the movie, I don't fully know because I was so distracted by hating her. Yeah. So I'm kind of, I can kind of only comment on the things about it that I enjoyed, but whether it successfully built that tone from beginning to end, I, I couldn't tell you because <laughs> I was watching a movie I was watching Gonzo, Gonzo Girl, where I was inserted into the story, hating this woman in front of me and just having to figure out what what to do with that feeling. So I don't know if I would revisit this one. It, I think I know this was not a masterpiece or anything, at least. So I don't know that I would give it a second watch, but I, I kind of wish I could give it a fair shake without the distraction in the theater. Cool. Um, well, this brings us to the end. Our last film of the festival. Um, you know, it, it didn't have to be our last film. We kind of decided it was our last film. Oh, that it might have been a good one to go out on uh, and, and just call the festival done, relax and enjoy our last night in Toronto for flying home and rejoining our normal lives and going back to work. So, uh, this is the film The Holdovers uh, by Alexander Payne. And uh, basically, it is a story of sort of a kind of a, an asshole of a teacher at this boys school and a asshole of a student who both are forced to um, hang out over Christmas vacation together at the school because the kid doesn't have anywhere to go because his home life has resulted in him missing out on his vacation. And uh, the teacher's doesn't have any sort of semblance of a home life and didn't have an excuse and kind of is for forced to spend those two weeks or whatever it is together with this kid. And, you know, it starts off where this kid is completely unlikable and the professor, while also an asshole, is entertainingly an asshole. Like he just kind of, he's teaching these kids who just don't get what he's trying to teach and um, he kind of hates every day of work. And he, he kind of enjoys handing kids papers that are Fs. And like, I'm kind of like, both of these people are assholes. And I love one of them. I hate the other one. The other one's annoying. And over the course of this film, as they begrudgingly have to come together, just the facades of their assholeness break down a little bit. They find a way to potentially come together. Um, and I, and I kind of just like it started off being a funny film that I was kind of vibing with to being a actually deep and emotional film that kind of I went from liking the moment to moment beats of these characters interacting to liking the relationship these two characters have together. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know more to say about it than that. It was, it was a film that actually by the end, you know, maybe got me a little teary in a moment um, just because of what the moments mean to the characters themselves. And uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of walked away from it going like, yeah, you know, what? I think that's a good closeout to this festival. So, so Stephen, what did you think? Yeah, I kind of loved this movie. Honestly, I, I had a, a top five piece that I was working on uh, in this last weekend. And The Holdovers kind of came close to needing to have a spot. But I was, I was so committed to, you know, my current list, I didn't really allow myself to consider it. Because this, <laughs> this isn't like a profoundly moving film or, you know, this isn't a movie that is trying to say something incredibly deep or existential. But it's also, I know I've said it a lot in these reviews, but this is the kind of movie that you just don't really get 
anymore. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a heartfelt. I call it a coming of age movie, but it's kind of multiple things at once. It's also a Scrooge movie. It's like it's a connecting at two different parts in life and learning how to thaw your kind of rugged, grumpy exterior and not turn into someone nice, but learn how to begrudgingly respect and love each other. Yeah. Um, this is like, I, I've probably mentioned this before, but th there's a trick that Parks and Recreation did with the character of April Ludgate, Aubrey Plaza's character, where she was so emotionally cold and distant that when in like season two or three, you finally got a moment where she smiles or says something kind, you're like, oh my God, this is my favorite thing that has ever happened. <laughs> and when you can set up a character like that, you can just keep banging that beat and I'm going to fucking fall for it. Yeah. And this movie does that specifically with Paul Giamatti's grumpy classics professor who is, you know, he he's an asshole. He's not someone you hate, though. He's like a lovable asshole who's like a nerd who's obsessed with Greek culture and he thinks he's going to whip these kids into shape. Yeah. And watching him open up and show how he cares about these kids even beneath the kind of exterior of being a a mean teacher who just wants to punish them i thought it was just lovely and delightful um it reminded me i, I don't know if this will mean much to you but it reminded me of the hal ashby movies he did like harold and maude and being there and a bunch of these films in the 70s that are kind of these lackadaisical nice wistful movies that are just following characters for a few hours uh having them learn from each other and i I thought this felt like a throwback to one of those. First of all, it very much wants to be a 70s movie down to the like the title card and the logos and everything is very much like yeah. this is not only a period piece. This is meant to feel like it was filmed in 1973. Um, and I think it succeeds and it just it warmed my fucking heart. I, I think this is so much better than downsizing. I feel like Alexander Payne is really back in a way that I enjoy and I think people are going to love this when it comes out. That this and Hitman to me are like the the charming movies that are not taking themselves so seriously, but low key are actually pretty awesome. Yeah, <laughs> um, that I think are going to have a real chance this award season of just finding an audience and being big hits. So I love me some Giamatti in everything, and I think he is fantastic here. And there's just a lot of heart and soul to this movie. It was a really Really nice movie to end the fest on. I, I felt very warm toward it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Stephen, that's it. That's our that's our ten days at TIFF in twenty twenty three. Um, yeah. Any, any any last thoughts just about the festival in general? Yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to mention some regrets because even though we caught thirty things, uh, we did not catch everything at the festival. You kind of can't, especially without a press badge. You. Uh, by the time you know whether a movie is getting buzzed, it's already too late to get any more screenings of it yeah. sometimes. So the three regrets that I most have here, one are dream scenario, which I'm just kicking myself for not booking a ticket to that originally. The thing is, when you go to festivals and you see there's a Nick Cage movie, you don't know which Nick Cage movie you're going to get. Because <laughs> there are Nick Cage movies like Pig that blow your mind, that are beautiful, heartfelt, amazing. And there are Nick Cage movies that are just like crazy exploitation flicks. Some are good and fun and some are just no one will ever comment on them ever again. Yeah. And I, for whatever reason, in my cursory view of Dream Scenario, I just assumed it was going to be the latter. Um, it, even though it not only has Nick Cage, it has Dylan Galula, who I also really, really love. Uh, she's the romantic lead in Shithouse. Uh, mm. And like... I, 
I don't know why I didn't watch this movie. It got awesome reviews out of the fest. A24 is seriously pushing for it now, and I am just disappointed in myself for, I mean, for not seeing that one. To, to be fair, it was a thing that was always just being shifted because its time slot connect or conflicted with other things that right. we wanted. So there are a number of times that we tried to put it on the list. One of the times... It would have been on there before some other things were on there, but its tickets just weren't on sale. So we put other mm. things in the slot. And then once we had those locked in, it was like, mm, this unknown quantity, the only yeah. places it can go are against other things that we had already kind of dialed into and really wanted to see. Um, so, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't like we didn't try. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like, I remember Daddio was one that conflicted with it. And yeah. To be fair, in the limit of time, even though I liked Daddy-O, I didn't love it. I think you liked it significantly more than I did. Yeah. The likelihood that Daddy-O gets a big release that hits SF compared to this A24 Nick Cage movie, it's much lower. So, like, I'm probably happier overall in the festival that I saw that movie because, of course, Dream Scenario, given the hype, it's going to come out. Yeah. We're going to see it at Alamo. We're, we're going to have plenty of time to dissect it. But that was just a big regret for me because everything I'm hearing about it are, like... Charlie Kaufman, Ari Aster, Nick Cage, crazy, interesting satire comedy. And I'm like, God damn it. I would have loved that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other ones are one was a little movie that was not on my radar at all called Sing Sing, a Coleman Domingo movie um, about people in a prison who put on a play. That is a thing that was lacking in this year's TIFF, at least for me, was like the the movie that just makes me cry my eyes out. Usually a festival has at least one that just hits me in that, you know, heart place. Honey Boy was that for me back in 2019 at TIFF. And by all accounts, Sing Sing would be that movie for me. It sounds like it is really moving. It found an audience. People are really loving it. And I tried repeatedly once I knew it existed to find any screening of it, and they just never opened another one. Yeah. And then the last one is Woman of the Hour, the Anna Kendrick directorial debut film. That was always on our radar. We had it booked, and then I booked Anatomy of a Fall because I wanted to revisit it and wanted you to get a chance. I don't regret that choice. I stand by that decision, but reviews out of tiff made me wish i could have also seen anna kendrick's movie so hopefully we'll get a chance at some point yeah i mean it, it was picked up by netflix so we will get a chance for sure um yep. and it'll probably be within the next few months or something like that so so yeah for for me overall when you're booking so many things like once you get the real the, the few things that are actually like on your list of what you thought were must-sees um I, I kind of have I'm, I'm at the point where I have no regrets. <laughs> yeah. You know, there were definitely things where like would have liked to include, but I never really felt like, oh, I mean, you know, there were a bunch of things that like we had not even looked at because we had already had tickets through packages. Um, some of those things turned out great. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily get rid of them in hindsight, but it's like at the time you're filling so many things. And when it's like, when you start your list and you're like, Hey, here are the nine things that I really, really want to see. What, if you're booking 30 things, it's hard to feel real regrets unless there was something that like everybody was like really, really talking about. And there was no way you were ever going to see it. Like the first time that we went to like Tribeca, some of those things are still coming out now, like five years later. Right. right? Where it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'm super glad that we saw those things because we were like some of the only people that, ever watch those things um but like yeah. all the things that we missed were i feel like we're definitely going to get to see um so i'm not i'm not too sad about it 
Yeah. No, I, I stand by that. And I think we did a pretty good mix this year of movies that are big and going to be talked about by everyone and movies that may never see the light of day that we'll just be happy that we got a chance to catch. Yeah. My, my so, only... yeah, no, no real regret, I guess. I just, I think in hindsight, if I had known about Sing Sing and if I knew how much Dream Scenario would be up my alley, I think we could have made the jigsaw puzzle work for all of them. And I just didn't even try ahead of time because I didn't realize that they were the kind of movie that I would want to make sure I caught. Yeah, I, I think the I think the only real <laughs> the only real true regret that I have is that we saw Agro Drift. <laughs> like, like No, but I don't regret it. I I mean I hard I, I regretted it thirty seconds into that film. <laughs> but that was, you know, that's that's my bad for jokingly pointing at it and not expecting you to take that dare. <laughs> Yeah, but what if it never gets distributed anywhere and it becomes this like the stuff of legend of this thing called aggro drift that only people at TIFF ever got to see? Wouldn't wouldn't you feel like you were part of an exclusive club who got to live through aggro drift? No, no, Stephen, because I feel like a sucker who fell for like this film <laughs> should not have been programmed. What this film th this is. This should only be programmed at the festivals where you have to submit on a VHS tape and people just grab one for the pile mm. and put it in and everybody watches it. And like everybody knows that that's the one copy that exists and nobody else will get to watch this. Then still not. But <laughs> I want to attend one of those festivals. Those sound awesome. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure they exist. I just don't know the name of it. Uh, but yeah, it's just I. Yeah, it's fine. All in all, had a great time at the festival. Um, I enjoyed more things than I didn't enjoy. And with the exception of two things, there wasn't anything that I actively disliked. There were just things that didn't really work for me. Um, so mm. all in all, great festival. Excited to go back next year. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll be able to work out some press passes or something so that we can see everything that we yeah. want to see. Yeah, I hope so. A final little cross-promotional plug uh, the thing I was working on uh, was a top five list uh, that was published on Decoding Everything. That's Dave Chen's Substack that everyone should go and subscribe to. So if you want to go read that, um, yeah, maybe we'll link to it in the show notes uh, or something. Just kind of a recap, a more deep dive on the top five of the fest, which for me were, I'm going to remember these in order, American <laughs> Fiction, The Royal Hotel, The Zone of Interest, The Boy in the Huron, and Perfect Days. So if that sounds interesting to you, go check it out. Thank you to Chris, by the way, for helping do a last minute edit at like midnight when we had a 5 a.m. alarm to head to the airport. <laughs> oh, man. Whew. That was uh, that was an interesting day. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our coverage of TIFF 2023. Steve Miller, people want to find you throughout the week. Where can they do that? Uh, you can find me on all the networks at S. David Miller. I got a lot of Blue, so Blue Sky followers in the last few days. So I guess I'm going to say Blue Sky slash S. David Miller if that's how their URLs work. Um, but I'm on I'm on Twitter, threads, Instagram, whatever, or sdavidmiller.com. Cool. And people can find me at ChristopherMirrorLife.com or ChristopherIRL at Mastodon.social. <laughs> Finally got rid of my... <laughs> My self-hosted Mastodon instance. Um, but uh, yeah, people can find the podcast over at thespoilerwarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so in Overcast, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know, the, if you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at twitter.com slash spoilerwarning, facebook.com slash thespoilerwarning, or instagram.com slash thespoilerwarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at thespoilerwarning.com, or you can use the contact form on your site. 
the music for this episode will come from that little jingle, TIFF 2023, welcome to the festival. Um, so hopefully you're hearing that right now. But yeah, we, uh, you know, three episodes to wrap up our coverage. We're going to return to normal theatrical releases this weekend with, ironically, a film that played at TIFF, uh, Dumb Money. Um, so hopefully everybody uh, can look forward to that review coming soon. All right. Bye. Bye.